Some of you may have left uh, last Sunday feeling like maybe I had left you dangling over a cliff. Uh, and some of the comments that I made at the beginning of the sermon, I just want you to know something. I did that on purpose. It wasn't some accident. Because we spoke a little bit about the inspiration and the infallibility of Scripture, things that we consider to be very fundamental and central doctrines to the Christian faith. And what I brought to your attention is this, is that the, the rendering of what we call the first calling of the disciples in John is somewhat different than you find in the, the other Gospels. And that sometimes people will try to use that as a point of attack when we talk about the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture or that sort of thing. Uh, and I'm going to tell you this, that, that uh, I'm going to give you an answer to what you might think is a dilemma this morning. It may not satisfy you, but it's really about the only one that I can come up with, and I think it really ought to satisfy all of us. To give us peace and comfort and understanding that the Bible really is the Word of God, that it is absolutely true and it is without error of any sort at all John actually helps us to answer any questions that we might have about this it's the way he ends his gospel or very near the end of the gospel this is what he says he says there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, we understand from that that the Gospels are nowhere near being absolutely inclusive of everything that Jesus taught and everything did. That at the best, we just have a snippet of all of it. Every one of the Gospels has unique material in it that you don't find in the others. But what I want to challenge us with this morning is there, there are, there are, there's in essence, there are voids here. In other words, we don't have an absolute, complete record of all the teachings and the goings-on of Jesus. John says if we had that, the book would fill up the whole world. What I'm telling you is this. We, do, we should not speculate on things we don't know about. You need to understand that, first of all. But what I'm telling you is this, is what we have is these tidbits, but we don't have the necessary filler in between them that would reconcile this. And the worst thing that we can do is try to do it. You follow what I'm saying? God gives us what he wants us to know. He gives us what we need. And we need to be satisfied with that. I want you to know I stand before you this morning. I believe 100% absolutely in the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible. There is no error in it at all. Period. 
but there's a lot more to it than what we have here. So what I'm telling you is we're not going to have an, uh, 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 an answer to absolutely every single question we have about something. But we do have what God has wanted us to know at this point. We have all that we need. He's not withholding anything from us. So I hope you too believe in the inerrancy, absolute inerrancy and the infallibility of the scriptures. That you do understand them to be your rule and authority for every aspect of your life and the manner in which you live it. Don't ever let anyone take that away from you because there are people who will try to do that. And let me just tell you, when I was in seminary, we had a professor that would tell, say things like this. He said, the, the, the day that you begin to give up on the idea of the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture, absolutely, then you're stepping out onto a slippery slope. And before you know it, you're going to slide and slip to places you never thought in your lifetime you would ever go. So I just want to encourage all of you to embrace that doctrine. That the Bible, in fact, is God's word. It's only part of it, though. Do you understand? There's far more to know than what he's given us. And maybe one of these days, I really believe this, we will far, one of these days, know far more than we know right now. But, but I think we would be crazy to believe that we are ever going to be at a point where we're going to understand and, and, and know absolutely everything that has ever passed through the mind of God. No. But you can have confidence he has given you, he's given you and me right now what he wants us to know, what we need to know to live our life in the manner that he would have us live it. With that said, we're going to move ahead into chapter 2. Again, what you're going to find here is material that is unique to John. You don't find it anywhere else in the other Gospels. And we're only going to be doing part of the chapter up through verse 12. So let me read this. On the, uh, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Where the, the, <clears throat> the wine ran out, when the wine ran out, uh, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Take note of that. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, 
Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum uh, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Again, this is material that's unique to John. There's no conversation in any of the other three Gospels uh, about this particular event. I think it's worthy to note as we begin this morning that this first public miracle reported by John has to do with marriage and the celebration of that should tell us some things, and one of those is that marriage is very central in God's picture of things for us. should also tell us that marriage is very important to God, very important to Jesus. Weddings seem to have always been a big deal. You know, family and friends come together. There's, there's a great deal of rejoicing that very often takes place at weddings. We were at a family wedding yesterday, Lori and I and Lindsay and the kids and Nancy and Riley. We were at, uh, at, at uh, Shelby's wedding. You guys know Shelby. She comes here every now and has played the piano for us. She just got married yesterday. But all the family was there, and there was celebration. And this sort of thing has gone on in pretty much every culture and every generation for the history of mankind. People have acknowledged that marriage is something that is worthy. Marriage is something that is worthy of seeking after. Marriage is something worthy of celebrating. Now, we understand that there's a culture out there today that would love to attack that whole idea, that whole concept. We understand this. In the world today, marriage doesn't hold that central place, that respectful place that for so many centuries has uh, through much of the history of the world. But marriage is very important to God and therefore should be very, very important to each one of us. It's a place called Cana of Galilee and we're not really exactly sure where there, that was but, but most seem to believe that it was located not really far from the Sea of Galilee and just a short distance south of Nazareth. So this was a place that was very, uh, very close, really, that, that, that a lot of family were able to come and attend this particular wedding. But again, it's really interesting that this is, this is a first recorded, and I just want to emphasize that this is the first recorded miracle of Jesus. Doesn't mean that Jesus hadn't done anything before this that was miraculous. As a matter of fact, from Mary's perspective, it seems like she had some idea he was fully capable of doing this, taking care of this little situation here. But just remember this. Any time we talk about marriage, one of the things that you and I need to remember is this, is this is how God describes our relationship with him. 
And we need to always consider that there is a much greater, a far more reaching marriage celebration that's going to take place at the very end of time, as we know it, called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And we understand that the most important invitation that anyone could ever receive to a wedding in all of their life is to have an invitation to that particular marriage feast. And in Christ Jesus, we will be there. And we have celebrated marriage before, but let me tell you something. We will not come close in any marriage we celebrate in this world to the celebration that's going to take place at that marriage feast. If you're in Christ Jesus, you indeed will be there. You will take part in that. One of the things I want to take note of here is this. Is Mary knows that Jesus is fully capable of fixing this problem when the wine runs out. He's fully capable of taking care of it. Why? I guess we could make a couple of guesses at that. Maybe she was enlightened by the Holy Spirit at that point, which I'd say probably she was. Uh, maybe, perhaps. You know, we, we had, this is the first recorded miracle of Jesus. Remember, I emphasized recorded. It doesn't necessarily mean he didn't do anything miraculous before this. It very well could be, to, be that his mom has seen him do some things through his lifetime that were just unbelievable already. She knows that for him, this is nothing. <laughs> but one of the th things we need to remember is this, is, is notice here, Jesus doesn't pray to the Father to give him the power to, to, to fix the situation. We have no indication that takes place at all. What we find here is Jesus has the ability to do it. And we understand this, that no mortal man has the ability to literally do something like change water into wine. I mean, we can do it in an indirect sense because we know we, all the process you have to go through to take, take grape juice and make it wine after some time, right? But we understand that this is nothing that any person has ever been able to do instantaneously. We know that this is a miracle from God, that God can intercede, he can enter into the physical realm anytime he wants to and do anything that he wants to do. But one of the most important things I think we need to glean from this is Jesus didn't pray to the Father, please, Father, give me the ability to do this. And he did it. That he had the ability, had the authority, had the power to do it already. Something that we understand that only God could do. It's nothing that any mortal person could do. Only God could do this. So what conclusion must we come to? And that is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God.
Now you can understand it could be very embarrassing at a wedding. You know, things have changed a lot. You know, the marriages, the, the wedding feasts and whatever we're having now look a lot more like they used to in, in biblical days. But for many, many years, like when Lori and I got married, you know, the regular thing was you had the wedding service and then you had, had wedding cake and peanuts afterwards. But today, the expectation is there's this wedding feast. And, I, and, I, and let me tell you, I think they've got it better together today than maybe we had it before. That it is really a time of family and friends getting together and throwing a big bash where they celebrate this wedding. Now you can understand why it would be very embarrassing to a host to run out of something. Right? We had, we had Lindsay and Justin's wedding reception, and we thought we ran out of punch. <laughs> I don't know. Lindsay's looking at me. I don't remember that. But, but I remember it because I felt embarrassed because we had all these people here in, the, in this room that were here to celebrate our daughter's wedding, and we don't have enough punch. But guess what? There was plenty of punch left in the kitchen that just gotten, was forgotten about. We didn't find it until after everything was done. <laughs> So you could understand, because the expectations were high for these gatherings, and the expectations today are very high, by the way. Just looking this week, because I kind of keep track of this, and it, you just need to understand that it keeps jumping up. Every year, the price of the average wedding goes up and up and up and up. And most of us could remember when you could buy a decent small house for $34,000. But that is what the average wedding in the United States today is costing, $34,000. Doesn't that blow your mind? Well, there's some places in the United States, in some states it's even higher. In New Jersey, it's $53,000. And if you've been keeping track of this over the last 10 years, it just keeps jumping. And it's not just a little bit. These are big steps from year to year to year to year. Most of us can remember when you could buy a house for that much money. Well, as you can imagine, this particular miracle of Jesus can be a problem for some people. Uh, actually, two groups of people. Number one are folks that would be classified as liberal Christians or li liberal Bible scholars who don't believe that Jesus actually did any miracles at all. So how do they explain it? Well, one of them that I briefly looked at, I don't really take 
seriously the comments of a lot of these people to begin with. Uh, but they just interjected the idea that really what happened there was this, was that, uh, that the water pots had been filled with wine originally, and then uh, as they took the wine out of it, they eventually became empty, and so now there was no wine, so they put water into those pots, and there was a little residual wine, and so now they had something kind of like wine or whatever. But one of the problems with that is it said this, the, the, what came out was the very best of wine, not just wine, but the very best of wine. Top quality stuff. But we also know this. It's a problem for a good number of our brothers and sisters in Christ who believe that drinking alcohol in any way, shape, or form, in any amount, is a sin. You probably know people that fit into that category. And there's a lot that we can say about this, but one of the things is this, is, 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 is this really was real wine? And Jesus really was there. And in all likelihood, he was also drinking it. What I would say to you is this, is things like wine and beer, etc. They're things that God has given to us as a blessing. But very often people have taken them and made them into a curse. Uh, because the Bible in no way, nowhere says we cannot partake. As a matter of fact, it's really easy to show in the Bible that this whole mindset that, that alcohol in any way, shape, or form, in any amount, is an abomination, just doesn't hold up. If you go back to the worship services in the tabernacle in the temple, there was what was called a wine offering. Wine was used in the worship of God. In the Old Testament. This is something that we need to tread on very cautiously. Because we know that for some people. What God has intended to be a blessing has actually become a curse. One of the reasons there's a Covenant Children's Home is a lot of those kids that wind up there are either the children of alcoholics or drug addicts or both. So even though alcoholism is not forbidden or <laughs> drinking of alcohol is not forbidden, over drinking of alcohol is a sin. And we understand this, that it has this effect on us that very often when we are drinking, if we have a little bit too much, then we will do and we will say things that we normally would not do. When we get to that point, we have had too much.
We need to also be sensitive to our brothers and sisters who believe that it is a sin. I hope you don't have this attitude. You know, I know so-and-so, they're those, those teetotalers, you know, and they, they, they believe that drinking alcohol is a sin, but I, I'm going to go away and have my beer right in front of them just to show them I can do that. Not a good attitude at all. One of the things that you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be very sensitive to the fact that certain people, some people, uh, have an addiction to alcohol and they don't have the wherewithal to stop it at the point they need to and very often they find themselves going over the limit. And they start doing things and saying things that they normally would not do. We understand that, that, that overconsumption of alcohol very often leads to other sins like adultery and you know, this, that, and the other people doing things they not normally would do. But when they're under the influence of a lot of alcohol, they'll do just about anything. And I want to challenge us with the idea this morning that God's intention is not for us to basically, you know, waive our right to do this in front of other people. There's a rule of thumb that we all need to live by. That is, if my liberty to drink some alcohol should cause a brother or sister to stumble, then may I never drink it again. May it never pass over my lips. Because let me tell you, if I'm not willing to say that, what we're saying is my right, my privilege that God has given me to drink alcohol is more important than you are. And that is not a message that we want to be sharing with other people. Again, if my liberty to drink some alcohol should cause a brother or sister to stumble, then may I never, ever, 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 ever drink it again. Be sensitive to people that you know don't know when to stop. One of the things I wanted to note here, too, is this, is Jesus didn't make just a little bit of wine. You know, you start figuring up, you know, these water pots held like six gallons and so on and so on and so on. It was like 30-something gallons of wine that he made. Not just a little bit. There are actually churches that I know of that will not let men serve in office as officers if they believe that it's legitimate for them to have an occasional beer or a glass of wine. And there's not just a small fraction of them that fall in that category. There's a lot of them. I know a guy that a few years ago, he owned some, some convenience stores and he was disciplined by his church because he sold beer. is basically discharged from his church because he had the audacity to sell beer in his store. It's 
See, this is, this is one of those things where there are people that would be willing to live and die for their perspective that alcohol in any way, shape, or form is a thing of the devil. And there are people, if they were preaching from this, this particular passage, I don't know how, what they would do with it. The only way to get that perspective to fit into this picture is to twist and bend what the Bible says. And we need to be very, very cautious about not doing that. We can't read stuff into it it doesn't say. Again, a little bit of alcohol is fine. Too much is not. Too much is a sin. And it's a sin that leads to more sins because we understand that when we're inebriated, we'll do all kinds of things we normally wouldn't do. We'll say all kinds of things we normally wouldn't say. Alcoholism is a legitimate illness. If you don't suffer from it, then good for you. But there are people who do. And we need to be as sensitive to them as we possibly can. If you open up our refrigerator door, on the top shelf, there's going to be some beer sitting there. Lori hates it. So what does that tell you? It's there for me. For a lot of reasons, but one of those is because when I get out and I work in the yard, I mow the grass and stuff like that, there's nothing like a cold beer when I come in and I'm hot. But I have personally set my limit as to I never have more than two beers at one time, at one sitting, ever. So what I want to encourage all of us is enjoy the benefit. This is, is a gift that God's given to us. It's we use it rightly, but it's a curse if we use it wrongly. It's also an area that we really need to be very, very sensitive to our brothers and sisters in Christ and other people, unbelievers, that have a particular addiction to alcohol that we don't have. So be very careful. I mean, use this freedom that God has given to you. Be, be very careful how you use it in the manner that you use it. You're not the most important person in the room. And if we all had that perspective, then things very often would go very differently. And I just want to remind us as we're closing this morning that we already mentioned this great wedding feast that lies in the future. And we don't know exactly when that future is, but we know it's coming. The marriage supper of the Lamb, where his bride, his church, will be gathered to him. And we will see him and know him as he is. If we could just 
have an inkling of what that celebration is going to be like, we wouldn't miss it for anything. We would give up everything we have just to be there, to be a part of it. We're celebrating, or I don't know that we would ever call this celebrating, but we're commemorating, we're remembering this morning. Not just the death, but the life and the death and the resurrection. That all needs to be part of this picture. Every one of those puzzle pieces is absolutely essential for our understanding of what Christ has done for us and what Christ is doing for us and what Christ will do for us. His life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension too, by the way. We understand that he's not physically here this morning. But he's given us this Lord's Supper as a special gift to remind us of many things. And one of those things I want to challenge us with this morning is that marriage supper of the Lamb that is yet before us. So the praise team is going to come and lead us.